I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Kimberly Williams Paisley, who you might know for her role as Annie Banks in Father of the Bride or her TV series called According to Jim or her appearances in Nashville or Boston Legal. But she's here today to talk with us about her book, Where the Light Gets In, which is a beautifully realized and important, poignant memoir about her relationship with her mom and her mom's journey through a rare form of dementia. And what we'd love to do is give you a copy of Where the Light Gets In. Just rate us and review us on iTunes and be entered to win a copy. Welcome, Kimberly, to Just the Right Book. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Kimberly, what were the first signs that you noticed in your mom that made you suspect something was awry? Well, um, everything's clear in hindsight, but uh, there are things now that I that I can point to, uh, like irrationality and um, increased anger, intense anger, um, things like that, around, specifically around my engagement and my wedding. Um, but but specifically, it was my mother who came to us and said, I'm having trouble signing my checks at the grocery store. And that was that was a year or so after my wedding. And she was the one who first came to my dad and, and the kids and said, this doesn't seem right. I don't think this is how it's supposed to be. Why can't I add up numbers the same way? And our initial reactions across the board pretty much were, this is stress-related, or you're not getting enough sleep, or... Um, you know, there's got to be some explanation for this, and we've got to just fix that. Um, nobody suspected dementia. It wasn't something that was in my family. It wasn't anything we specifically thought of. Mm-hmm. And so it took a, a couple of years and lots of tests and lots of different specialists before they came to the diagnosis of primary progressive aphasia. And my mom just passed away in November, and uh, they did a brain autopsy, and it turns out her dementia was actually caused by Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia. So the whole time I thought it was one of the rarer ones, and it turns out it's it's one that affects more than 5 million Americans. And, and your family, at your mother's uh, request, kept it secret for a while. Did, was there... A disagreement. You have two siblings, Ashley yeah. and Jay. Was, it, was mm-hmm. there disagreement? I'm telling you their names as if you didn't <laughs> know their names. <laughs> um, uh, was there disagreement among um, your your family members, your dad and your brother and sister? Yes, there was. It was very challenging that my mom didn't want us to talk about this illness. And I think it was a mistake that we made as a family. My dad really wanted to support her and support and honor her wishes. And she did not want us to talk about it outside of the family. She was embarrassed. And unfortunately, this is something that happens to a lot of dementia patients. Um, And she didn't want people to think she wasn't smart. She didn't want people to pity her. Uh, She part of her felt like irrationally, like it was her fault. And she just wanted it to be the family secret. And unfortunately, we missed out on a lot of resources that could have helped us. We missed out on support groups. We missed out on hearing from other families what mistakes they made and how we could avoid those mistakes. 
so I, I really regret that. I think all of us do. And it, it was challenging. And, and I think my siblings and I were the first to break away from that secrecy. And uh, we weren't right next to her all the time. So it was a lot easier for us to start talking about it. And And what do you think, you know, I was wondering about that as I was reading uh, the book, was it that the doctors that you first met with didn't quite um, talk to you adequately about what what was coming and what resources might exist or what pre-planning steps you could have taken? I wouldn't blame them. I think that there's a lot of information to convey when a diagnosis like that is reached and we all heard, in five to seven years, you're going to need full-time care. And it was really hard to move beyond any of that. Mm. I remember my mom saying, well, what am I supposed to do now? And one of the doctors said, well, go home and be a grandmother. I was pregnant at the time with my first child. And we all just thought, well, how, how is she going to do that? If in five to seven years, she's not going to be able to do anything for herself and what we missed, what we swept under the rug at the time was the doctor also said, I'm very concerned about your driving. Mm. And that was one of the things that we should have gotten more help with, getting the keys away from my mom. And she honestly, she drove a lot longer than she should have. And that was another mistake that we made. Uh, thinking, well, she's desperate for her autonomy. She's desperate to still be in charge of certain parts of her life. And this is one of the things she loves. She loves driving to Costco, <laughs> you know, and, um, and hated to take that away. It was so close, you know, it's so close to home. Why, she knows the way. Why can't we just keep letting her do that? Well, one day she was in the parking lot of Costco and accidentally confused the brake and the gas pedal and tore down the aisle of Costco and impaled the car on top of a little wall. Yeah. And fortunately, nobody was hurt. Uh you know, that it could have been disastrous. But she she kept driving even after that. Uh, well, you have a scene in the book that my heart just dropped um, when when she was carrying Jasper, your yes, second yeah. child, and the blanket yeah. was dragging, and, yeah. you know, he was sort of falling out of her arms and basically did, but she caught him, and it made me realize how difficult it is to sort of keep her safe, uh, keep your kids safe, and where where you balance those needs, right? To balance her needs and balance your own needs. I mean, how did... Exactly. It was tricky because I needed to protect her pride. And if I didn't, it it was a very dark day, (laughs) sometimes a very dark week. And when she would come and visit, yeah, I was dealing with parenting my own kids and then beginning to also parent my mom and trying to anticipate what are the problems she could get into. And once she did almost drop Jasper, and that was terrifying, and I started to think about all the other things that could go wrong when you just can't you can't um, count on someone and a, to be an adult and to make adult choices. It was It was like she was a toddler, too. The the other thing that I wondered about is you're a well-known actress. You know, you starred in Father of the Bride. You've been on TV shows. Your husband, Brad Paisley, is obviously a huge um, country music star. Was it difficult to keep this sort of, you know, very public life and the secret? Do you think that made it 
even more complicated because you felt like you were acting like, you know, like the like the movie never shut down. Yeah, I, I talk in the book about doing um, an episode of Boston Legal, and coincidentally, I was arguing at the Supreme Court against a drug for Alzheimer's. It was a, like a trial study, and um, and that was the first time I ever spoke to anyone outside my close circle about my mom, and it was to the director um, because I was I was getting very emotional in the scene and. Um, well, I don't know if you ever saw that show, but William I did. I loved and it. James Spader. Yeah, they were fantastic. And so James Spader's arguing for the drug because he wants to help William Shatner's character who has Alzheimer's. And the director came up to me and after a take and said, why are you crying when you, you can tell that you've just, you've just, uh, he's winning the argument. But, but I was, it was like I was getting emotionally invested in what he was saying about his friend with Alzheimer's. And I said, I said, this is a, charged issue on both sides. And even though, you know, I'm arguing against the drug, I understand all of the complexities about it. My mom has dementia and it just like came out Mm. and it wasn't a big deal. And the the ground didn't open up and swallow me. It was, it was okay to talk about it. And, and um, I don't think the director realized what a big moment that was for me. Um, But shortly after that, it was harder and harder to hide my mom's illness and we'd go out in public, and it it would be very obvious that something was wrong um, out to a restaurant or out to a a, sh- a store, um, and we would just laugh and 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 people were so kind, really. When even when they knew that something was wrong, it wasn't it wasn't like people were laughing and pointing fingers. People people got it. You know, one of the things that um, we spoke about this uh, briefly just before we started uh, the interview, um, my mom just died a few years, a few days ago, a few years ago, a few mm-hmm. days ago. And in reading, in reading your book and in thinking about losing my mom, what I've been left with two notions this week, and I'm reminded of it reading your book. One is the importance of our taking pleasure where and how it exists. Right. And the other, to your uh, point that you just made, is the extraordinary kindness of so many people mm-hmm. that, you know, even notes I got that said as little as um, you know, you're in my thoughts and prayers. Mm-hmm. You're comforted by people touching you in any way, and you're reminded when you go through these difficult circumstances that the village is there to take care of you. However, you created that village and whatever it looks like, whether it's geographic or not, I think people forget that even the littlest thing makes an impact. I think you're right, and I'm sorry about your mom. Oh, thank you. It's, um, it's just not any, it's so hard, and, and no matter when or how it happens, you know, we were saying it's just, it still hurts. It's, um, you know, if you think about these almost 11 years, right, that your mom, yeah. uh, from the time she was first diagnosed till, uh, until she died in November, and my mm-hmm. mom, although she was 89, died suddenly. It was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a shock, and there's a part of me that as I was reading about your times with your mother, particularly after you had that conversation with Bill Shatner's wife, Liz, that mm-hmm. 
that changed how you were dealing with your mother. And, uh, right. and I'll ask you to talk about that a little bit. Did you long for your time with her to go on or for it to end? Well, it's a complicated question, but I, I would say a bit of both. I definitely, definitely by the end, I thought I knew it was time. And I had had conversations with her um, to, to that effect of saying, Mom, you can let go and it's okay. We're going to be okay. Because I didn't know if maybe she was hanging on because of us. She wasn't verbal in any way. She wasn't able to do anything for herself. It didn't seem like she recognized anyone. And, and I, and I, struggled with it a lot and I I really felt like okay <laughs> you know I don't understand the bigger picture here of why this is still going on but she was on her own she was on her own timetable yeah and yeah when I think I always um wished that I had had actually some closure yeah. with her that she understood and I don't know if you felt like that with your mom at all like if you if you if there were things that you wish you'd said I said these things to my mom before she died, but I don't know if she ever registered them. So a lot of the work for me was learning to accept what I have, which is I can love her in a different way. I don't have to hear the words out of her mouth of, you know, you've been a great daughter or, um, you know, I'm sorry about the mistakes I made or, you know, any, any sort of reconciliation um, or goodbye. I was not going to get in words, but I did have wonderful time with her and, and sharing a laugh with her. Um, and it, that happened a lot where something funny or silly would happen and we'd share a laugh. That's love. I love this connection. paragraph. I love this paragraph you wrote after you had that Festivus at um, mm-hmm. the farm. And the, and the paragraph that you wrote was, the happiness we felt possibly romanticized in my memory still feeds me years later. The Mm -hmm. evening was one of the last times we'd all be together. In the next couple of years, our large, larger family would change dramatically in predictable ways and in unexpected. But in that moment, huddled in our country kitchen, all was well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do think in, you know, I'll I'll mention this a couple of times. I think that the um, service that you've provided in writing this book, which feels... Very unvarnished and very, it it feels contemporaneous. It feels as if you were writing each thing as you were experiencing it. And I think for somebody else dealing with this or somebody who's watching a friend uh, deal with this, you've done a really just brilliant job, Kimberly, of normalizing what many people going through this must think is not normal. No, thank you. You know, of talking about your guilt or, you know, the instance of your mom and you didn't always have the smoothest relationship. And how do you reconcile that? uh, Right. When, as you say, you can't find closure. Right. What what did Liz, uh, I don't know, does Bill Shatner's wife Liz go by Liz Shatner? Yes. Yeah, okay. So there was a time that they came into Nashville for a show that Bill was doing and the four of you had dinner. Share with us what Liz said to you and how it changed your subsequent uh, visits to your mom. Yeah, so this was right after we put my mom into long-term care, and I had started thinking about her and talking about her even in the past tense, and I couldn't help myself because I felt like my mom wasn't there. She was someone unrecognizable. She'd become incredibly aggressive um, and 
I it was too painful to talk about her in the present tense, and I and there was, you know, it was it was challenging putting her in a long term care um, facility, and so Liz was asking about how things were with my mom, and I and usually I just say oh they're fine because <laughs> you know I don't want to go into yeah, all details, of <laughs> yeah nuts and bolts, and um, and she started telling me a story about her dad who had Alzheimer's, and a week before he died, um, he he got his wife to call Liz and, and put the two of them on the phone. And Liz said her dad growing up had never really said, I love you. It just wasn't something that he ever did. Well, a week before he died, he got on the phone with her and started saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. It was like the only thing he could mm. say. And he just <laughs> said it over and over. And, and I, she told me this story and I started weeping and, realized I needed to go see my mom right away and and find a new kind of connection with her, that there was still the possibility of connection with, with this person. And it just had to be in a different way. And I, I talk about, but in the past when I'd visited her, it was so painful because I couldn't look at her without also seeing this ghost of the person she mm-hmm. used to be. And that haunted me. Yeah. All the things. And I just kept thinking to myself, Mom, if you could see yourself right now, you would just be devastated. And that hurt me because I felt the pain I was imagining she would feel. But the reality was she wasn't aware of that person that she used to be. And she was actually someone who was living in the moment in a similar way that my kids live in the moment. And that was another thing that I thought would be a lot harder um, was with my children. I didn't think they'd have a relationship with her or I thought that they would be devastated the way I was by seeing her the way she was. Well, they weren't. They accepted her for who she Just was. Just that way. Yeah, and she she had a great relationship with my oldest son, Huck. I love Huck walking into the long-term facility with his, like, little suit, and, yeah. know, marching off to her room. <laughs> yes, he wanted to dress up for her. Um, and I think they learned a deeper level of compassion by going mm. to the, that place. And, and seeing my mom go through all of that up until the end. You know, the other question I want to make sure um, uh, or topic that we address, I, I, I really struggled as I was reading the book about what your dad was burdened with and his feeling the kind of responsibility and not accepting help from the three of you or from a third party caregiver, how do you think you help? I mean, A, what was that like for for you? And B, how can you help the caregiving parent? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's that's number one, whenever I, I go and speak about this, is pay attention to the caregiver. We thought he was okay. He kept reassuring us that he was okay. My dad always wanted to be Superman and take care of my mom. And, and he wanted to be able to handle it all. And then he kind of got sucked up into the the dementia belief, you know, that that he he needed to keep the secret too, and and he didn't want people to know how much he was doing. It was strange. He wasn't thinking rationally. And there came a point when we really thought, feared that we would lose him before we lost her, mm. because it was a very dangerous situation. He did not want to get support. He didn't want to go to a support group because he felt like he would be taking care of everyone in the support group because <laughs> he was a caregiver. Yeah. Um, and then finally, when he did go, he did what he thought. He, he dutifully took care of everyone in the circle as they shared. 
and the leader of the of the group came up to him afterwards and singled him out and asked him if he was being treated for depression. And I think it was a real wake-up call for him. He hadn't realized he was depressed, but he was, and he wound up getting help. So the support group was was good for him, but not in the way he expected. I think, you know, we could have kept after him a little bit more, um, made regular visits home and really like gotten in there to see what was happening. And, and we, we had interventions. We had many interventions just saying, you can't do this all yourself. Let's hire people. Let's get people in. And, you know, sometimes they're stubborn. Yeah. Do you, you know, one of the things I wondered about when I was reading this, do you think there is the possibility that the um, person at the beginning of their Alzheimer's, really could get the kind of guidance where they lay out their caregiving plan? Because your mom, as you disclose in the book, early on said she didn't want your dad to take care of her as she declined, but it was vague and not specific, understandably. Right. Is there there help given... um, now, or should there be to help the um, diagnosed person think about what that looks like? I mean, as I've been reading the book, I've been talking to my husband, um, because in between here, between my mom dying, was also my 68th birthday, and I thought, um, you know, these are are conversations that we don't want to have. Should we be having them? When should we be having them? Yes, exactly. I think we should be having them when we're healthy. Yeah. And when we can think clearly. Um and there are there there are questions like if you go on the Alzheimer's Association website, um there are things that you can ask each other about how you want your care, what you want your care to look like. Um you can start saving now for long-term care later in case you need it. Um d- dementia is a family disease because it affects the whole family because of the 24-7 caregiving needs. And it's expensive. You know, when family members have to quit their jobs to take care yeah. of somebody, that's expensive. So it's worth talking about and, and, and asking each other these questions and writing them down. That's the big key. Because I, I remember my mom saying stuff like, you know, when I was younger, like, oh, if I ever do that, just shoot me. Right. You know, <laughs> if that ever happens to me, just shoot me. And it's amazing how many people say that. And don't think about, you know, what that really looks like. Right. Of course, that's not going to happen. You know, so what else do we have? Um, And write that down. And Kimberly, what was mourning the loss of your mother while she was alive? What was that like compared to the mourning the loss of your mother after she died? Yeah, that's a great question. When she was alive, it felt like purgatory a little bit, I would, I would compartmentalize and I would, I would feel short bursts of sadness and then I would just pack it all back up because it wasn't done yet. Um, and when she died, I was surprised at how much it hurt and how hard it was. And, uh, um, it was you really, thought you really, had mourned. Well, yeah, I thought I had, I thought mm. I had for 10 years and then all of a sudden there was, there it was, but it was, it was sort of like I had to go and unpack the bag <laughs> and, um, it was it was very cathartic though it 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 was painful but cathartic and I felt like finally I can just release all this. And did it liberate uh, you to think of your mom pre-illness? 
It did, actually. I was surprised by that. I, I was able to think of her more before she got sick, absolutely. I think that it hurt to think that way when she was sick because she was still around. But once she was gone, it, I started remembering things. And my sister said the same thing. We started remembering things about her we hadn't thought about in a long time. And you had an, another um, set of circumstances, which I think is not uncommon. Your mom was in long-term care. Your father, um, after a brief bout with prostate cancer, was you know, coming back to himself and, in fact, started dating. Right. And um, he's in a relationship now that started when my mom was alive. And how was that? That was challenging for me in the beginning. Uh, I think he really wanted my blessing. He wanted the three kids' blessings, that it was okay for him to go and, and find a partner. I mean, he was still married, and... um and at first, it was hard for me to give him my blessing. I mean, I did, but it was hard for me to reconcile with it. I yeah. felt conflicted. Uh, and um, and then I saw how much he needs it. He really is so much happier in a relationship. He's a very giving person who needs to be with a partner. And for so many years, he didn't have a partner. He was just, you know, really being beaten up in various ways. Is he and still with Nancy? Yes, he is. So Nancy is an old friend of mine. When I finished oh, really? the book, yeah, <laughs> I was. Oh, funny. In fact, I, she, and I were very close while she was dealing with her mom's Alzheimer's, and as she was writing in lieu of flowers. So for okay. people listening, uh, Nancy Cobb, who Kimberly's dad uh, is with, had two parents going through Alzheimer's, and she's an only child and has an only child. Right. So it. I was almost shocked when I got to the end of the book and I realized, uh, you you know, I I got to the page where it said your dad had recommended you reading in in lieu of flowers, which, by the way, is a book I recommend often to people grieving no matter how they lost their parents. I think it's an absolutely beautiful book. But then I didn't think your dad was going to be dating Nancy. Well, I didn't either. It was a perfect way for him to introduce me to her because I read it and I loved it. And um and I said, "Well, yeah, this is this is great. I love this tone and you know, and he said, "Well, guess what?" That's, it um, is a so beautiful it, book. Yes, and I think that um Nancy's you know, was a uniquely suited person to come into that dynamic of um, you know, a man whose wife is in long-term care with dementia. She understood. She understood what that looked like and why why he was in the situation he was in, looking for a partner, yeah. even with a wife. You know. So, Kimberly, your book. Um, <clears throat> before we close this out, and I ask you one um, final question. One is for everybody <clears throat> listening. There, not only is this a, a book important, I think, for all of us to read, whether we're we're dealing with it or or not. It stands on its own as a uh, beautifully written story about um, a daughter, you, Kimberly, dealing with a family as it is um, buffeted by the circumstances of your mom's illness. But in addition for those dealing with it, it's got a whole bunch of resources plus the benefit of you telling your story, what what's the one piece of advice that you'd want to 
uh, offer to someone who is dealing with this situation? Really, they need to read the book, but in case they don't get to it for a couple of weeks. Well, if they, if they don't get to it, I understand because they're probably extremely busy. Yeah. Um, I, I think if I had to pick one piece of advice, it would be to forgive yourself and forgive the person you're taking care of. Or, mm. you know, dementia is an ugly, challenging, messy disease. And, you know, we're all trying to do the best we can. And if I were, if I had read this book 10 years ago that I wrote, um, maybe I would have avoided some of the mistakes, but I also feel like I probably would have made some of them all over again. Yeah. And so wherever possible, forgive, forgive yourself because, um, because it's just not easy, you know, and, and guilt, we found guilt hasn't gotten us anywhere. Yeah. It's so prevalent with caregivers, and it really doesn't do any good. Well, Kimberly, I'll leave you um, with this uh, thought. Reading this book or even having this brief opportunity um, to talk with you, you know, the legacy we leave our parents, um, we honor them by the way we represent them. And I would say the kind of love that you talk about your mom, the kind of sibling and daughter and wife and mother that's so clearly depicted in this book is probably the biggest honor you could uh, bring to her. So thank you for sharing all that with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks again for a really extraordinary conversation with Kimberly Williams Paisley. Her book, Where the Light Gets In, is available in paperback now. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Just the Right Book podcast on iTunes and rate and review us for a chance to win her book. We want to hear from you. Please email your questions to info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, a division of CRN International. Thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keogh. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Thank you all for listening.